Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. All right. Good morning. People on the radio are waiting, but I'm glad to hear the talking. This is good. We are going to go ahead and get settled, though. Again, I love the talking. That means fellowship's happening. This is good. This is what the church is supposed to be. But excited to be together also for a Bible study. Uh, as you are getting settled, I don't have a handout. So if there's a Bible on the cart, if you want to read the Bible in print, or if you've got your phone, however you see fit, I just don't do handouts. It's just not my thing. Other pastors here are more skilled at it than I. So anyways, now that we're a little bit quieter, um, glad to be with you. Glad that those who are listening on air and later on can be with us. Especially those who are on air may not recognize my voice because it's been a little while. I haven't been in here uh, with you all for Bible study, so... Uh, for those on air, Pastor Kevin Thompson, and glad to be with you all this morning for Bible study. Looking at Luke, so we're going to continue the same style, even though it's me th- today. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you have given us first and foremost this new day, that you have woken us this morning to serve you, to give you honor and glory in whatever it is, Lord, that you have prepared for us. And especially, Lord, we are truly grateful that you have gathered us here this morning to worship you, to receive the gifts you have for us, and to, especially now in this hour, to receive your word, to study it, to think about it, to have questions and considerations, to dig into it, Lord, because ultimately your word, as we consider more today, your word is the true power that we have both in this world and in the world to come. So, Lord, now may you bless our time together, bless us with your Holy Spirit, and, Lord, as you would have us go from here, may we serve you and give you honor and glory today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so I'm glad to be with you. Today we're going to continue Luke. I'm not going to talk about what y'all talked about last week. I know there were a couple verses left, and you left off, uh, technically speaking, about verse 23. Pastor Thomas told me that you only discussed through 23, but you really read all the way through the end of Luke chapter 3. And Luke chapter 3 ends with the very last words saying, The Son of God. Because that section that you all read and you talked about was the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And I know Pastor Thomas talked about this, but last week, but the one thing I did want to say is I was one of those people for a long time that skipped over all that kind of stuff. I was. When I was first reading, this was sooner in my life to, to, these, to today than I'd like to admit, but I was the one who, when it got to genealogy and the things like in the Old Testament with the building of the ark and the covenant, I'm like, all right, the cubits, I get it. But we see, and I know Pastor Thomas talked about this, there's reason for it. One, it's God's word. But as you got into last week with him, God gives us some beautiful detail with who he includes in that genealogy. And how the genealogy, as also recorded a little bit differently in another gospel account, points us to different things, different aspects of who our God is. So there is a point. I do read through them now, okay? I don't skip over the genealogies anymore. Um, But, especially I should say that while I'm on the air, right? Uh, the point I want to just uh, refresh and bring, um, help us remember as we go into Luke chapter 4 today is that last, those last four words, the Son of God, because especially in Luke, this genealogy, the way it's written and who's included it, really seeks to point the reader to see that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's what we're going to especially also focus on as we go on into the next portion, to the temptation, and throughout the whole rest of the gospel, right? But that's, the, that's a strong emphasis, to see Jesus as the Son of God. Because now, in chapter 4, 
Jesus is going to show himself to be that person. It's not just a list of people that speak, okay, he's from that lineage, he's the son of God, but now Jesus is going to show it. He's going to put it into action to show he is the son of God. Now, I want to be careful also, I don't want to overstate that in the sense that at this point in the gospel, right, he hasn't shown it to its fullest extent. As we typically hear and are reminded, it's through his death and resurrection that he primarily, that he really shows to its fullest that he is God, he is the one who's come to die and rise. But especially already in chapter 4, he's starting to show it more clearly. So, let's just go ahead and begin with reading it. Luke chapter 4, I'm going to read the first 13 verses for us. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So here ends the reading that we'll focus on today. So, look at this, and we see right off the bat, it says in the beginning of verse 1, And Jesus full of the Holy Spirit. That's a phrase that we don't want to gloss over too much because it's a phrase that helps link us to his baptism. Right Prior to this, he's baptized and shows that he is one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so this also then points to the forward to the fact that the Spirit is going to have a prominent role here in the life of Jesus, let alone the Gospel of Luke. So full of the Holy Spirit, it points us to that he, again, is not just some man. As we'll see, he's the Son of God. So it goes on, it says, He was from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. Now the wilderness, as most commentators look at it, is likely in Judea, likely even the, the desert region northwest of the Dead Sea. But also for us to note, he's homeward bound. And we're not going to get into it today, but next week as you discuss um, Luke chapter 4, he's in his hometown. So we also see he's on his way towards his hometown, and that'll come into play more next week. But the wilderness is also a place, especially in these times, that is a place that is is associated with demons. We can see this in other scriptural references. If you want to look at Matthew chapter 12, it talks about it there. But not just biblical, but other, um, like, non, those who didn't follow just the true God, they would see the wilderness as a place that was associated with demons. Because it was that out there, right? You're away from other things, and there's likely, they think, more temptation or more um, susceptibility to being attacked. So this also then plays in the fact that there he is, and there he is tempted, right? Now, we don't think that the wilderness is just a place of demons, but rather Jesus goes into the wilderness because that's what he went to do, to be tempted. 
But the wilderness for others would have recalled this, this likely dark or terrifying image. Also, what does it recall? What's the one thing you think of when you hear Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days? Someone want to shout it out? There we go. Oh, all the way in the back, too. <laughs> the Israelites, right? God's people, the Israelites, wandering in the wilderness, not just for 40 days, but for 40 years. Now, it's re- we would be remiss to not notice this. There is, we can see, parallel between these things. And I want to leave some of that for later and come back to that because I don't want to get ahead of myself. But I want to hold on, say this now and hold on to it, that see the parallels, the connections between Jesus and Moses, between Jesus and Adam, we haven't even gotten there yet, but also Jesus and Old Testament Israel, the, the nation, the people of Israel. I want to come back to those. But it says, he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. That's about halfway through verse 2. Tempted. Now, um, one thing that I at least have glossed over before, and I don't know if you did this yourself, but when he's in the wilderness, he's tempted the whole time. There's temptations there. It says, when he was in the wilderness, he was being tempted by the devil. And then it goes on, he says, he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And then we have the temptation of the devil. I totally missed that, honestly, until recently. He was tempted that whole time in the wilderness. And then on top of that, we've got, if you will, kind of these final three temptations by the devil. Now, what were those temptations like? I don't know. We don't know. We don't have it. But uh, I think this, again, points to the fact that who is this Jesus? He is truly the Son of God because he goes through 40 days of temptation and the ones that we'll look at on top of that. And we'll come back to this word tempt a little bit later because I want to talk about that more. But again, people struggle with this word. What does it mean to tempt? I know I've said it like three times, but we will come back to this stuff. Don't worry. Okay? So, he is tempted. And one of the things we see about all of these temptations, we'll we'll dig deep into each one of them because there's so much to learn from them. But in each one of these temptations, you could, be careful here, but summarize them by saying, he is tempted to fill his desire in the now as opposed to waiting. It's a temptation to the instant, immediate self-gratification, as opposed to waiting. Right? Because three times it says, if you're the Son of God, do this, rather than waiting till He shows that He is the Son of God, and He'll have all these things, how He'll show that He is the ruler over all, and He is the bread of life, all these other things. Essentially, you can look at these three temptations. It's attempting Him to fulfill the now, as opposed to waiting. Now, I don't want hands on this or people shouting out, but ever been tempted to that, right? Us being tempted by the now, the instant, the self-gratification, the impatience in our human flawed nature. There's one thing I think we can clearly see a connection. Um, Now, that does make me think I want to be careful that Jesus' temptation is not just about teaching us that we're tempted. His temptation by the devil and and in the wilderness is about so much more. It's about him actually doing the work rather than just being an example. He actually goes and resists temptation perfectly, fulfilling things so that therefore we can resist temptation. So even as I started to talk, oh, it reminds us of our temptation. We must be careful. This account is not just as some good, nice example for us. This is him fulfilling what only he could do. And because he fulfilled it, we resist. And we're able to 
to, to be sustained through temptation. Now that being said, of course we think about our temptation too, right? We think about how we're tempted. As I just said, we think about how we're tempted through our self-gratification, that impatience in us, that now as opposed to waiting for it. I would argue also that that was one in our world today. I'm not pointing fingers at any people, but just in our world today is probably one of the most prevalent temptations, right? That self-gratification, that fulfilling what I want, what I think I need right here and now in my way. So we certainly see connections that in ways he's tempted, we certainly experience that as well. So let's dig into these. Uh, three different temptations. Did anyone notice the order in which they're in compared to the other Gospels? Have you even read the other ones? They're in different order. Okay? These three temptations are in a different order than some of the other Gospel accounts record them. I know I'm on air, but I'm going to say I don't think it matters. Okay? Right? Like we can see some difference in the Gospel accounts um, can point us to different things. But I, and I'll highlight one difference here, but... It doesn't mean we, we think that one is false or one doesn't know what he's talking about. It's like anything else we talk about the, the Gospels. They may differ in some ways in which they record things, but that's just like anything else in the sense that... Can I pick on you, bud? Can I pick on you, bud? All right. Can I pick on you, Janet? Great. I'm not actually going to do anything to you, don't worry. Right? Janet and I may both observe something, the same thing. But if you ask her, she's going to tell you something. You're laughing at me, aren't you? Uh, she's going to record something different than I am. Because we see things differently. We're different people, right? Different perspectives. Different. So, again, we don't want to read anything too much into it. But there is a different order. Let's get into this. First temptation. He's hungry, right? Says that in the desert, he's tempted. 40 days, doesn't eat anything. At the end of verse 2, he was hungry. Right? So this first temptation, it just attacks one of the most basic needs there is. Hunger. All of us need to eat, right? We all get hungry. Some of us more hungry, more, right? All, all of us get hungry. And in some ways, as much as this uh, account is teaching us that he is the son of God, meaning he's God, this also shows us he's man, human, Right? He's not just some supernatural God, but he's also God and full man. 100% both. Because he experiences hunger just like everybody else. And if I were in the wilderness not eating for 40 days, I don't know if I'd make it. Right? Okay. But he's human. So, this first temptation attacks his basic need. It's trying to get Jesus to doubt the fatherly protection and providence. Uh, it's, it was interesting, I was talking to Pastor Wade about today, and because you know, we're going through Luke here, there's not uh, an intentional pairing with what we're going through in worship, but this pairs so well with what we're hearing here at St. Paul's in worship this weekend. The fact that Jesus is the bread of life, and he reminds us that we shouldn't focus too much on our earthly, but also that God provides, and he'll provide even more than our earthly. So right here, the devil's trying to get Jesus to doubt that. Get Jesus to doubt that God won't provide. Now, we'll notice something with this first one. We see him in all three of them. It says, verse 3, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. If you're the Son of God. Right? Jesus, he, the devil is trying to tempt Jesus to get him to show what kind, of, what kind of Son of God he is. Jesus is the Son of God. 
He is. There's no question about that. But the devil here, excuse me, is trying to get him to tempt it. Like, well, if you're really the greatest, then show me. Does that sound familiar to anything that anyone's ever said to you, right? If you really think you can do it, then show me, right? If you think you're the Son of God, then do it. He's trying to get Jesus to show him. And Jesus does show him. So he's not falling into temptation. Um, but Jesus is showing he is the Son of God. And what kind of Son of God is he? Faithful? Humble? As opposed to what the devil wants him to show? That he's a self-serving Son of God? That's not who he is. He's faithful to the plan. He waits, he endures the temptation, and he goes on through so much more. This said reference today to John chapter 6 is where you hear Jesus is the bread of life. We also think about in the context of the gospel, here the devil tempts them to make the stone become bread, and then later on what does Jesus go on to do? Steve? Or something else? What bugs you, Steve? Yeah. <laughs> Comment is the devil's acting stupid here. He knows. Yeah, I mean, you could say something to that effect, right? The devil knows. But also, what is the devil's primary goal? It is to get Jesus to fall, to go to his way. I mean, he is the deceiver. And it, I mean, in some ways, I guess you could say it's, it's silly in that sense. But um, you also look back in verse, uh, well, 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is leading him out in the wilderness. So one with the Father, the Spirit, this is, a, this is a God-driven, really. As much as God is allowing the devil to tempt him, it's a God-driven thing, right? That Jesus go and be tempted. Jesus, did, we can say this with so many things, right? He didn't have to be tempted, did he? He's God. Like anything else we say, right? He could do anything he want, right? And yet, God chose him to go through this way. He sends him in the wilderness and he endures the temptation. That's my best thought to it, Steve, but... Right? <laughs> Is it, I'm just going to say, it's okay to bu- let it bug you. It may not. And <laughs> there's nothing I can say. Because so, sometimes we read things in Scripture that do just kind of bug us, right? Ruth? Yeah, good point, Ruth. So, uh, reminding us, as I even said, that there's the divine, but also the human nature, two in one. And so you've especially got the fact that because he is fully human, that means he would endure temptation just like any other human. That's a good point to remember as well. Absolutely. And we talk about that in confirmation. We just, I mean, it was a couple months ago now. But why did Jesus have to become human? So he could live fully under the weight of the law and fulfill that law perfectly for us. Thank you, Ruth. Oh, I know what I'm saying. So, the bread, right? And then he moves on. And what else does he do in his ministry forward from here? He feeds 5,000, right? And then also, you've got the fact that he breaks bread with his disciples. Whether that be at times, right, when he gets off the boat and he's sitting on the, the side of the lake. And right at times, he broke bread with his disciples. But then the most uh, important breaking of bread, the Last Supper, 
So you see this theme of bread and providing and what Jesus does all the way back in the wilderness, this temptation points even more forward to what he's going to do in the greatest fulfillment of being the son of God. All right, temptation number two. So what goes on and he says, he took him up, verse five, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdom of the world in a moment's time and said, to you I'll give all this authority and glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. The second one, the first one's looking at hunger, this basic need. The second temptation, looking at more power, authority, to make Jesus a political ruler, to have all the riches. The key here, what is the devil offering, if you will? What does he say he can offer? He says he can offer all the riches without any of the suffering. Here again is where I talk about and emphasize, well, I read this in commentaries, right? The, the appeal to the now as opposed to wait. He's saying, right now, I'll give you all of this power and authority. You don't have to go on and suffer and die. Right? That's, I mean, that is enticing to a way, right? I mean, that's a temptation. Why go through all that suffering if you can have it now? But of course, Jesus is God, so he resists. But that's what he's getting at. I'll give you all of this. You don't even have to wait for all those. Supposedly, you don't have to wait to go to the cross to have all of this. Now, the question is, can the devil really do that? No. Right? It's a lie. He can't do that. Now, um, if God granted, sure, but he, God's not going to grant him that kind of power. Right? So, as you said, Ruth, it's a lie. He is the prince of lies. He is the deceiver. That's the whole goal he's trying to do here. Also, we see in here, um, in essence, to, to, to worship. Right, which we'll see a little bit more in the third temptation. So let's get to that third temptation here. Goes on, and I know I've skipped some words, but we're coming back for a certain reason, right? He goes on, verse 9, He took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Throw yourself down from here. As, and then he goes on to quote, The scripture, in part, says his, he'll command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So, this third one is talking especially about worship. Who is your true God? Right? Now, talk about before, what does this whole temptation in the wilderness for 40 days remind us of? It reminds us of Israel wandering in the desert. Right? And Israel in the desert, they failed to worship and serve the true God. Multiple times. Right? We've heard those accounts. For, so those of you who are sitting here before me, likely those listening as well, you've heard them many, many times before, how they failed to truly worship God, to really put their full trust in God, even at times putting God to the test. Again, another parallel we see today, we hear in, in our worship at St. Paul's, the account that they basically said, you know what? It would have been better to God if we just would have died. Died back in Egypt, eating as much meat as we wanted. Why'd you put us out here to be hungry? They weren't putting their full trust in God. They failed to serve him. And so here in this third temptation, we see that the devil is tempting Jesus to also put God to the test. Because he's, the devil, now we get into these verses, verse 10 and 11, the devil quotes scripture. That was the key. He twists it, right? Leaves out some words. Twist God's word. So let's mind you, right? You see, you see, in, typically in the Bibles, they're kind of indented, right? They look a little bit different. But the devil does something so, um, so important that we need to know. He twists God's words. 
He says, okay, throw yourself down because God says he'll do this. It's not the full story. And isn't this the whole thing, this, or not, sorry, isn't this the whole mode of operation, if you will, that the devil uses all the time? Twist God's word. Go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis, right? Adam and Eve in the garden. So, I got to share a story, sorry. That made me think of that. Totally unrelated, but I'm going to do it anyways. So, I love just watching children when they pay attention. They start to regurgitate things from when you're reading Bible stories. The other day, I have my daughter's, my two-year-old's, like, little Bible. And we're talking about God and Adam and Eve. And she now says, God made me. Makes me so happy every time I hear it. Anyways, that's a side note about me. So, we're reading book of Genesis and Adam and Eve there. What happened to them? The devil says, well, did God really say... Did he really say this, right? He's getting them to, he's kind of trying to twist God's word just a little bit. Because if he twists it just a little bit, doesn't it maybe sound okay? Right? You think we ever experienced that in our world today? Again, Jesus is the fulfillment here, not just an example. But do we see the parallel to today? How many of you have ever heard God's word twisted once or another way? Now raise your hands this time. And now they're all up. Right, great. They didn't make it personal. I'm not asking you to reveal anything, right? We all hear it twisted. And sometimes it's not even intentional. One of the most common ways I see is if you Google, right, you want to put a, like a verse in a nice picture frame, and you Google a verse, just unintentionally people accidentally leave out a part, or right, possibly the key part that's really good and shows you meaning. So sometimes it's not always intentional. But unfortunately, the devil's trying as much as he can in this world to get us to doubt God's word, even just a little bit, to twist it. Because as soon as he gets that, it makes it feel like it's okay. It's okay if I do this. Because, well, you know, did God really say? And as soon as you start granting permission for that and having that, okay, well, it's not that big of a deal. Then it's where the slippery slope comes in, right? So the devil is trying to twist God's word. Uh, One reference here uh, is that Psalm 91. If you're looking for where uh, some of this comes from, Psalm 91 verse 11 and the words that are omitted uh, there is that in all ways, right? So that he will guard you in all ways. So he goes to Psalm 91 and he's quoting it, but he, t- he takes out some of the most important words in that entire verse. Uh, the other thing that we want to see uh, is interesting to note here is you look at that. He's talking here about worship and takes on the pinnacle of the temple, right? Is that later on we hear in scripture... Jesus is the stone that was rejected who became the cornerstone. Right? So we see all these connections. Just like with bread, you see bread all throughout Scripture and how God is using it and doing great things. And then here, you talk about the pinnacle of the temple and worship. But who is? What does it mean, true worship? True worship is to, to see Jesus as the Son of God. To see Him as the cornerstone. Him as uh, the Savior. Not power and authority or what you would wish. So these three temptations. Book of Hebrews. It tells us three things. I got this from a commentator, so it's not just mine. But it's true. It's good. Book of Hebrews tells us three things about these temptations. One, they're real. I'll say it here. There are some people out there who don't believe these were real. There are people who believe that these temptations didn't really happen. Uh, Some of the reason that they use is it's Jesus recounting it to his disciples. I mean, they weren't sitting there right there with him as they were tempted. But... Uh, those are in a few in the minority. If you look at the majority, especially Lutheran scholars and the like, it's real. And then you go to the book of Hebrews and it attests, this is real. Okay? So these are real things. Second, through each one of these temptations, 
Jesus remains absolutely unstained by them. He doesn't falter, doesn't fail at all. Which is why I especially point to, it's not just some good example, but he's the fulfillment. Right? Because he can actually perfectly fulfill these temptations. Third one, uh, one purpose was to assure us of his sympathy when we are tempted. So this gets at that point that I've been talking about a little bit before. That it also not only fulfills, but points us to the fact that when we're tempted, he enables us to endure. And I talk about this a lot with our junior confirmands, our like 7th and 8th graders. Jesus was tempted too. And I, tell, and I talk to them, and so here's my ethical question for you. Is it a sin to be tempted? Absolutely not. That was fast. You shook your head so super fast. Right? You're right. It's not a sin to be tempted. And I know I use this with, with middle schoolers because we've all been through middle school, right? But in all of us, at times, don't we sometimes feel almost guilty because we're tempted? Okay, I'll, I have in the past. Or especially if you're in middle school, think about all that stuff going on, and you're feeling like, oh, all this temptation. Now, when is there guilt? When you fall to it, right? But being tempted is not a sin. Jesus was tempted. He's sinless. So this also does point us to the fact that Jesus isn't just some God up in the seat. He knows what we go through. One, because he's omniscient. <laughs> There's that. But he's also been through it, too. That is a very personal God who cares that much to subject himself to that as well. Now I skipped over... Oh, sorry, bud. Go ahead. Uh, I think Luke is drawing a great contrast here because in the end of the previous chapter, he notes that Adam is the son of God, as we know Christ is the son of God. We know that Adam, being the son of God, sinned. We know that he is now showing us that Jesus, being the son of God, overcomes Yes. A great point, right? And so to repeat, especially those, that we see this contrast, this comparison contrast between Adam and Jesus. Absolutely. And this is the stuff I said in part I want to come back to, so I'm glad you brought us here. Jesus, or we, see that, um, we see this word, and there's a couple others we use um, examples of it, but typology. I'm sure some of you I know have heard of typology, but typology is especially a way to talk about the fact that some people in Scripture are types for Jesus. Similar but then you see a far greater, better, if you will, in Jesus. That's not the seminary definition, by the way. That's just my rephrasing in a simpler way. That you see the similarity, but then Jesus is like them, but even greater. So Adam. Adam is a type for Jesus. Because all the way back in the beginning, as I brought up, Adam's tempted, right? He failed. We want to be harsh on him miserably, right? He failed. Not only fails, but he pushes the blame to somebody else. And yet, we see... Now, Jesus, also tempted, succeeded. Succeeded greatly, right? Perfectly. Uh, and then I, you bring in the other aspects as well, like you said, but that we have this genealogy. We talked about Adam, and then even from there we got Jesus, and Adam is man. As we often use that term to talk about the old Adam in us, right? The human nature. I think you guys, I'm sure, have heard of that, right? The old Adam, right? We, as Luke, Martin Luther says in the small catechism, daily we are to drown the old Adam in baptism and rise to the new Adam. So that means to the sinful self and then rise to the resurrected 
made clean, righteous self. Adam and then Jesus. Great point, bud. So since we're on that with typology, let's think about, oh, I forgot this one. Uh, I forgot to reference. Romans 5, verse 12 talks about um, Adam and Jesus and that connection. Lisa. Yeah. Yeah. When does temptation turn into sin? Is it kind of what I'm hearing, right? Yeah. Good question. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, I'm not trying to be rude and say it that way. But I think th- that is a huge challenge for us. And so I can stand here in this little podium right in front of all of you and talk about it and like, okay, temptation and then sin. But the reality is you're very much pointing out, Lisa, is that where is that line? And it's blurry out there, right? Now we see, we can kind of, when we're studying scripture, we see it pretty clearly there. But unfortunately in our lives, I think that's a very fast, easy to cross blurred line, right? Um, yeah, I don't have anything more to say to that because it's just a tough, right? I think that's, you're, bringing, you're highlighting the challenge of, our, of what we live in. It's a good point, though. Yeah. That's a good point, right? Lord, forgive us not only for the sins that we've done, but the sins that we don't even know that we've done. That's a great one, especially in like youth. I teach youth confirmation a lot, right? I love that. Uh, but this is where I get my examples, right? They're like, well, how can I confess a sin and I don't know it? Well, because just what you said, right? Unfortunately, we don't even realize how often we sin. We got time. So, have any of you heard in here? I know one of you has. Um, have any of you heard the whole example I've used on how many times we sin in a, in a year or life? Other than one who's... Okay, great. Can I have someone do an example? Can I pick on someone who's got a phone? I won't make you do anything. All right, Scott, great. I'll pick on you. So, Scott, you're a good guy, Right? Okay, you're already beating me to the next punch, but you're a good guy, right? Okay, you're a good guy. Let's say you're so good, you only sin one time a day, right? One time, 365 sins a year. How, uh, sins a year. How old do you think you'll be, Scott? Just give a guess. Okay, you do your calculator math, because I'm not a math guy. Well, I went to the seminary. Uh, 85 times 365. <laughs> you like that music from Jeopardy or something, right? 31,000? 31,000, 25,000, right? So that's a lot of sins. But, Scott, as nice as you are, you also admitted you're not that good, right? So let's, give me a guess, and I won't, I won't put it on him. I'll let him speak for himself. How many times a day do you think you sin, Scott? Thousand, great. So now we'll add, he made it easy on us for math, right? Right, we just add a bunch of zeros. You get the point, it's a lot of sins in your life. A whole lifetime of sins. And generally I use this to talk about something else, that like Jesus came and he wiped away all of those, Right? But also realize that Scott said a thousand. I'm guessing he doesn't sit there at night recounting every one of those thousand because you can't even think of it. Because unfortunately in our world we realize what does it mean to sin and to fall in temptation? If you look at the Ten Commandments, I encourage you to do this later on, by the way. This is a great idea. Uh, well, you're bringing this up. Go through Luther's small catechism and look at those explanations to the commandments. It is so um, revealing to ourselves when we realize how many different ways we break those commandments. Right? The clearest example I often use is the fifth commandment. You shall not murder. Generally speaking, you ask that to a room, have you ever broken the fifth commandment? Everyone says, no, never, not me, right? But the fifth commandment also says, when you shall not murder, what does this mean? That also includes hate. Anytime you've had a hateful thought or feeling about someone else and you said, I hate that person, what that means is that is committing murder. That you're wishing that they go to hell. That's pretty terrible. That's breaking the fifth commandment. 
So what I, I, re, I share that to say that we don't even often realize the extent of what does it even mean, back to Lisa's point, to unfortunately sin so often in our life. And so where those boundaries come in, right? So Lord, forgive us even the sins we know not. Yeah, Randy. Yeah, that's a great point, right? It's, it's easy to resist the temptation. I'm repeating mostly for on air, right? It's easy to resist the temptation that you're not enticed to. Right? But especially, as you, you pointed out, like the ones we're enticed to, maybe we didn't do it yet, but as you said, Randy, did we think about it already? Did we already commit that in thought, possibly? Yeah. All right, so going back a little bit to the types, uh, because I don't want to go too far, and then they'll be like, why are we talking about this again? But as Bud brought up, we see this comparison with Adam and Jesus. As I mentioned earlier, we see it in others. So Adam is seen in Scripture as a type for Jesus, but then we also see... Um, Old Testament Israel, the nation of Israel, the people. Because as I said before, we see that we hear these similarities, right? The people of Israel, they were led into the wilderness, right? And in the wilderness, they were put to the test of active obedience. Will they obey God? Will they serve Him alone? Will they trust Him? Well, here's where we see the type. They both just, Jesus and the nation of Israel both led into the wilderness, both put to the test. Israel failed. Jesus succeeded. Very much like Israel, the Old Testament nation, and yet far greater and fulfills even more. Which is why often in Scripture, um, you, you hear Jesus referred to as the new Israel, right? The old new Israel and the new Israel. You see Jesus is life, but even far greater. And he's the fulfillment, right? And then the, the last one, um, other type you kind of have allusions to here in this Scripture passage, is Moses, Right? Moses is a type for Jesus too, in the sense that he was the leader of God's people. So this one's not as strong here in this passage. We see that elsewhere in scripture, but we can see some connections. That he's the one who led the people in the wilderness, and here Jesus goes in the wilderness as well. Alright, we're getting short on time, so I have to make sure that there's something that I cover. Because if I didn't, I would say this is just not a good cover discussion of Luke 4 here. How does Jesus combat the temptations? With the word of God. Each one of them combats it with the word of God. Even when the devil, in one of them, as we talked about, tries to use the word of God as well. It's, this is where I think, again, the order of the temptations, I don't think you should read too much into it. But what I think is neat about Luke, what we can see here, is look, you've got one temptation, devil says, hey, turn... Speaking a little too commonly here in my language, but he says here, turn this stone into bread. Jesus quotes scripture, speaks the word of God back, combats him with that. Then devil goes on, he says, I'll give you all this authority. Devil combats him with word of scripture. Then the third one, as recorded in this order in Luke, devil's trying to get even smarter. He's trying, right? He says, well, here's what the word says. So do this. But even still, Jesus knows what is true and what is right, and he combats even that with the true word of God. Yeah, there's certainly an example in here. And this is where I think, um, as much as I have tried to emphasize this, this passage about him fulfilling, here in this emphasis on how do you combat temptation with the word, is really where we get into how does this set an example for us, like you're saying, Steve. Because how do we endure temptation? Only by the word of God. I mean, you could also say things like, power of the Holy Spirit, right? By God. But how do we also receive all that? The word. How do we even know what sin is? I mean, similar to your question, Lisa, right? How do we even know what it is? The Word. 
Right? I mean, there is, some, there is part of the fact that God has written the law on our hearts. And there's this, this conscience that God has given all people. No, certain things are right and certain things are wrong. But Paul goes on, it's in the book of Romans, which this group studied extensively, right? So how do we not know unless we've been told? And you look here and the word tells us, this is what's sin. This is how we are to live. This is how we ought not to live. But also, the word is so much more than that. And that's, I think, some of the challenge some people face in this world. They think, well, the word is just going to tell you what to do and what not to do. The Bible's just, you know, telling me not to do things. I have so much more than that. The Word of God is the very power of God. And that's what we see here in this passage. How does he refute temptation? Every single time, by the Word of God. If you think about it, what I said earlier, Jesus could do anything any way he wanted, right? He also chose to use the Word of God to combat the devil. Brings me to the other point some people often ask is, well, why doesn't he just get rid of the devil then and there, right? I don't know, not God. But what I know is what does he show us? He shows that even though he didn't give, get rid of the devil right then and there, he showed us that with the power of the word, God's word, we have victory over the devil. We have the ability to resist, to withstand. Right? All right. I know I talk fast. I just get so excited. But it's probably a little different pace when I'm in here than others. I'm aware of that. So, any questions? Let's pause for that. Yeah, Mark. Yeah, that's a good point, Mark. I think especially what your highlight is right here, as compared to Job, we see that we're almost told this is going to happen and why it's going to happen, as compared to many other parts of Scripture we're not told, right? I don't think you actually asked a question, but I think that we struggle with <laughs> we struggle with that why there and not other places. And I think the only thing we can come back to is just what we have. Um, but I think... Yeah, I definitely think there is something to see for that these are special, if you will. I think that's a good point to it, right? Because here, with the temptation of Jesus, arguably what I've hopefully tried to convey through uh, what I've studied, right? It conveys this specialness that shows that he is the Son of God and points to even more of what he'll do. Uh, with Job, that's a whole... I mean, right, there's a lot there um, as well and shows that... And that one, um, especially... So many wrestle with, right? Because why would God allow and those kinds of things, those kinds of questions. But I think that one points to special of even through the depths of it, what does God still do and what did he show through the whole thing? So I do think there's something marked to your point that there's these, because we're given the reasons on this, it should draw our attention to something in it. Uh, and then I want to come back to something else you said, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so repeat, right? Like here we see a more direct as opposed to elsewhere, it's maybe a little bit less direct, or at least visibly to us. Because that would be my other thought is, I would say some way, many other times there's still direct attacks from the devil. It's just maybe we would not perceive that way, or we're not aware of it as well. Uh, but Mark, what you, and both of you as well, but Mark especially, you, talk, you started talking about that word testing, right, and attempting. That also made me think of what I wanted to talk about, as well as that here we see the temptation of Jesus. And there are, there are a lot of struggles that... Um, well, I've had great debates with people about this through the last couple of years, but in Scripture it says God tempts no one. And yet here we have the allowance of this. We think about in our lives, 
When scripture says God tempts no one, it means he's not going to tempt us to go away from him. Right? And so here, I think, Mark, in part, I bring this up with your point, because here the devil is allowing this, or God is allowing the devil to do this more directly than ever before, more directly than seen elsewhere. But what we do know is that through scripture, and, then, and so here, what the devil's goal try to do, the devil is trying to get him to go away from God, to go against God. And when we see scripture passages, it's from the book of James, it says that God tempts no one. What that means is that God is not going to intentionally try to lead us away from him. Now, does he allow for things to happen? Does he allow for temptation? Absolutely. And this is where, like, as much as I'm going to stand here and say these things, you might be thinking, like, 20 other questions. So please, come find me. We can talk about it, because it's hard in this style of format with just a couple minutes to talk about this. Because like I said, I've wrestled with this in so, with so many other people. God allows for temptation to happen in our lives. But he's not tempting us. He's good. He's perfect. Right? Now, there, we may look at things and we say, okay, well, did God allow that thing to happen? And that helps us drive us back closer to God? Yes, but... We start getting these things saying, well, God tempted me. God never tempted you to do that. Who's the tempter? Who's the deceiver? The devil, right? And this is where, I, as much as I bring this up, I still, I'm just going to admit personally, I'm still, still struggling with this, because Luke 4 says, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. I know I'm the pastor, I'm supposed to have a lot of answers, but I'll just say, like, I don't have the full answer to that one. Like, I just don't. Yeah, so that's the challenge. The Greek for tempt, it can mean test, peirazo. And this is where my debate has centered with people on this, right? The Greek for tempt can also mean test. But... Right. Don't put your Lord, your God to the test. Yeah, yeah. So, I know I'm supposed to provide a lot of answers, but wrestle with that one, because I'm still wrestling with it. And the commentators don't give a great answer, right? Um, but we know that God doesn't tempt anyone, and, and we know that when God uh, allows for things in our life, we may not be able to have the answers. We may not be able to say, like, God, why would you allow such and such? But what do we know? He also gives us what we need to combat it. He gives us what we need to withstand it. And even when we do fail, as many times as Scott and all of us fail in our lives... He's a God full of grace who says, come back. I'm here still, right? Just like us, Scott. All of us are the same. Not just you. We're all sinners. Yeah, Lisa. Oh, yeah. Yeah, our strength to resist the devil comes from God alone. But it's also interesting what you said there, Lisa, is that when we resist, it seems like he comes back harder. But that's also, I think, a truth we're going to see in our lives because if, he, if the devil can get a strong Christian to fall, how many more does he get than if he just gets someone who's never heard about Jesus before? Right? Everyone needs Jesus, right? And God doesn't want anyone to fall. But if you think about it, if there's someone... For example, we'll use pastors, right? If it gets up and want me to fall, then arguably that could make some of you, a lot more of you, question things about, about my, well, myself, right? But let alone many other things. 
Or follow my example, my poor example, and then all of a sudden I'm leading you astray. I don't have anything to confess, don't worry, we're good, okay? Uh, but the point is, is right, the devil's going to keep attacking. And he is going to say, that, find those, those who are strong, he's going to keep attacking. I'll never forget my seminary orientation day. Sat there, right, just got out of college, super stoked, seminary. And they said to you, they looked us in the eye, they said, you are going to experience more attacks from the devil in these four years than ever before. It's like, oh, welcome, Right? But it's also true. And it, it was, I mean, there are trying times. But what do we have? Still got God's word every time, right? All right, good. Any other? Yeah, oh, I've, yeah, Mark. Can an unbeliever be tempted? Because temptation is to pull us away from Christ. I would think so, right? I would say there's still, te- I mean, you can always go further, right? That was my first thought, right? If Jesus, I remember Dr. Ziegler gave this um, depiction or whatever, like if Jesus is a dot on the center of a paper, like where are we? We might be all these dots, and the devil's trying to get us to pull further and further and further away from the dot, right? Jesus. Jesus is not just a dot, right? I would say from that thought, yes, I think a non-believer can. I also think that God, because we're human, God has written on our, all of our hearts the law, with that, as we refer to as the conscience, and even the unbeliever knows, has a certain sense, I would say, a baseline, if you will, of a right and wrong. But if you disagree, you know, let's, let's talk about it more, right? <laughs> I'm okay if I'm wrong sometimes. Yeah. There, yeah, unbeliever could tempt to continue in their unbelief, their false ways. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Steve. Oh, like giving the devil fuel. <laughs> yeah, like we give the devil fuel, so to speak. Yeah. Could say that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know we're running out of time. These are good questions. One thing I did want to highlight because I almost forgot. As we compare this to other Gospels, you can see some differences in Matthew. Not, I, it's not that I don't care about those, but one thing I really want to highlight is the difference between Luke's re- record of the temptation and Mark's. You ever read Mark's? Two verses. Two verses, right? Just two. Um, but I'll never forget uh, a professor described Mark, the entire Gospel of Mark, as this. He said, Mark presents Jesus as the Kung Pao Jesus, Right? He's really into movies. I love him. It's great. And, and hear this reverently, right? What he means this is in a reverent way is that like, it's just like a one-two punch. Like in, Mark, in Mark's gospel, the brevity is so brilliant because you just get Jesus moving in quick, showing who he is, doing things, right? Whereas the other gospels, you have more details, right? And each for different reasons, as I talked about from the beginning. And there are a lot of people who challenge Mark because they say because of his brevity, he doesn't know what he's talking about. It's not that great, not that good. Because St. Paul spent, you know, what, almost 20 years on Mark. It's certainly a great gospel, right? Um, but it's, it's actually brilliant, the brevity that the gospel of Mark has to it. And if you also consider the fact that um, likely Mark was speaking to uh, people who knew the story, if you will, right? Second or third generation Christians who had heard some of these things. So then also the brevity comes into play as well. So it's not like, you know, 
they're going to repeat everything necessarily. But I just want to highlight that. You see a, a great difference. Uh, I was supposed to, I, well, I got to preach to a couple weeks or months ago, and it was the temptation is recorded in Mark's gospel. I'm like, doesn't give me much to go off of, right? Two verses need a little bit more detail to expand it in a sermon. But anyways, we need to wrap it up. Are there any other questions or comments before we do close? All right, good. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Let's just close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time, especially this time because we get to be in your word as we hear again today, your word is the power, the true power that we have in this world and for the world to come that you've promised to us. Lord, when we leave this place, we will be tempted in many, many ways. And you know that, and you're in control, Lord. But may you continually sustain us, may you strengthen us, and may you enable us to resist temptation. And Lord, even when those times will come when we fail, may we continue to run back to you. Grant us those repentant hearts come running back to you to receive the grace and mercy that you so wonderfully shower upon us. So Lord, we pray these things and all things in Jesus' name. Amen.